This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. BetterHelp is the largest e-counseling service in the world. In under 24 hours, you can start communicating with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. So just for my listeners, there is a special one-week offer. You get one week free of professional online counseling. Just go to betterhelp.com forward slash Dr. Ziegler one week. That's better H-E-L-P.com forward slash D-R-Z-I-E-G-L-E-R, the number one week. And now enjoy this amazing conversation with Dr. Bruce Perry. Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Pod Couch, where we have mental health conversations with transparency. Today I am recording from home as we are all still abiding by safer at home orders. When you are finished listening to this episode, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Reviews are everything. Dr. Perry is the Senior Fellow of the Child Trauma Academy. A major activity of the Child Trauma Academy is to translate emerging findings about the human brain and child development into practical implications for the way we nurture, protect, enrich, educate, and heal children. This model has been discussed as optimal for promoting social change in our current complex world. Solving problems which involve parenting, education, the law, child protective systems, mental health, law enforcement, and a host of related systems across every professional discipline is challenging. In response to this challenge, Dr. Perry and his team have created a collaborative, interdisciplinary, virtual center of excellence to address the needs of high-needs, high-risk children. Dr. Perry is a psychiatrist who holds an MD and PhD. His accomplishments are vast and numerous, but to highlight some, they include best-selling author of the book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, faculty member, research professor, chief of psychiatry at Children's Hospital, and medical director. He has attended or held positions at Baylor, University of Chicago Medicine, Northwestern, Amherst, Stanford, and Yale. His experience as a clinician and a researcher with traumatized children has led many community and governmental agencies to consult Dr. Perry following high-profile incidences involving traumatized children, such as the Branch Davidian siege, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Columbine school shootings, September 11th, Hurricane Katrina, and the Sandy Hook school shootings, and more. So I'm so happy to have you on, Dr. Bruce Perry. I want to actually have the opportunity to share with you um, how much your work has meant to my work and all the different ways that it's intersected with what I've done. So when I was in my doctoral program, I worked at a residential treatment center in Northern Colorado and it was called the Littler Center. And that was the first time I'd probably, I've heard, I had heard of your work. It's not something I necessarily learned in grad school, but it was more like on the job. Okay. If we're going to do trauma work, here's some of, you know, here's some guidance and since then, I then I went and did my internship, and then I came back, and my dream job was to be a clinical director of a residential treatment center. So that became Namaqua Center, and that was the first time that we actually started consulting with you. So because I got to be this clinical director, it was the first thing I asked the executive director, can we use the work of Bruce Perry? Can we do everything we can to implement change in residential care for our highest needs kids and the executive director at the time was a great leader said yes. And so we started consulting with you. We started training our foster families differently. And I just want to truly say thank you for the work that you do. It's been 
so impactful to me, the way I look at trauma, the way I treat children to this day. I also sat on the board for six years at Mount St. Vincent Home. So we clearly, we do everything NMT there. It's been humbling. Like we will raise money. We will do anything, whatever we have to do in those nonprofits to keep this model of care. So for people who don't know, it has, it just has changed, particularly in home care for kids there. It's hard for sometimes people to remember, but we do have children who um, are still cared for in congregate care and they are always our most needs, most abused, most traumatized children, um, and they need good work. So this has been life-changing. Just the notion, every time I see the word regulation, I think of you. I don't even know if you really 100% pioneered that, but but I think you did popularize it um, for clinicians. And so it's, you know, used everywhere in every industry now, you know, just little notions like an adult has to be regulated first before they can regulate a dysregulated child. Just the simplest of things, they seem simple now that I learned at some point going, wow, yeah, that makes sense. So I am humbled to be talking to you and um, you are my clinical work hero. <laughs> I'm <laughs> speechless. My head's getting too big. I don't know if I can get out of the room after this. <laughs> uh, I don't know how you stay humble, but you do. And it's really, it's really kind. And yes, we've even, our connection really is John Kelly at now at Sarah Health. And so I was also a um, consultant at Sarah Scan. And um, so all throughout my career, your work has just followed me in some way. And I'm glad for that. So thank you very much. Um, and so thank you. And I want to, I want to start off. I'm so excited for this conversation. I want to start off by asking you this question. Um, since March, you've been doing a COVID-19 stress, distress, and trauma series, even doing an interview with Oprah Winfrey. When I listened to your power differential talk, I knew that that was what I wanted to talk about with you today. Can you talk to me about how what you know about the brain and stress can help us move forward with thinking about the events that are unfolding the past couple of weeks and how it pertains to racial injustice and police brutality? The events of the last couple of weeks are historic, and I think they're going to be system changing. And... Uh, there's a couple things. I have a couple thoughts about this that relate to both the power differential and how the brain works and how people communicate. And so I think that the first thing that's really, it's not just, it's not really our work, but it's our translation of a lot of work that's been done in cognitive psychology and the cognitive neurosciences, where the people that have been studying how the human brain basically takes in sensory input and then manages all that input and then uses it for regulating emotions and, and thinking and then behaving. And one of the, the, one of the fundamental principles about that is that when the present moment comes into our brain, so for us to kind of make sense out of what's happening right now, it doesn't go straight up to the top part of your brain, your cortex, where we're basically smart up there. You know, we have systems in the top part of our head that help us think, that, that help us reflect on the past, help us think about the future, and really do good problem solving. And of course, that's a part of the brain that you want to be able to use. I, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but the, the uh, just the reality is that in order for the present moment to get up to the top part of your brain for you to do these good things, it has to get filtered. It has to pass through lower parts of your brain. And these lower parts of your brain are filled with little distorting filters 
that are based on your previous experiences in life. These filters, which are really based on experiences, they shape how you interpret the present moment. Let me give you just a really simple, obvious example that you've seen a million times in your work. Anybody who works with kids who've had a history of trauma, for example, if you find out that the person that was hurting them was a loud male and that they were always angry and that they would get mad and then they would hurt the child. We're never surprised that the child who grows up and then goes to work, who has a supervisor who yells at him, that that supervisor elicits this visceral response in the employee that's way out of proportion to the level of irritation that should come from a boss who's a jerk. And so we have, we all have these little filters, these little, little experiences that we have in life that honestly just distort the way we interpret the world. And this is kind of what the basis for implicit bias. In the lower part of your brain, a history of only being exposed to people who are Caucasian and your whole personal catalog of real human interactions is based on interacting with white folk. But you watch television growing up and on television, every single African-American youth was portrayed when I was growing up sort of as either as a criminal or there was very rarely were they the hero. Very rarely were they the good guy. They were a lot of times portrayed in these negative ways. And so when you go out into the world and you interact with someone of color, your brain can bias the way you interpret their behaviors, basically through that filter that, that was put into your head when you didn't even realize it based on your earlier experiences. And so everybody has these, you know, and, and it's not always about race. It could be about religion. It could be about uh, you know, one a classic internal bias that a lot of us get from growing up in high school is, you know, the jocks versus the geeks. You know, you sort of have this thing that I, you were excluded from the cool group and the cool group had jocks and cheerleaders. And now you grow up and you have this little bias about cheerleaders and or whatever it is. We all we all have these things. And I think one of the first important things about the present moment is for us to all realize that, you know what, we're all carrying around these internal biases, sometimes big, sometimes little. But to act like we're not racist, or I'm not a misogynist, or I'm not something, you're not, that's not really a completely accurate statement, because you don't really know necessarily. We're all carrying these little landmines, these little filters. And so I think that that's one of the first things I think that is important for, relevant for the present moment. We need to look into our own life history and get a sense of, wow, it's probable that I'm going to be a little biased to people that are this. I grew up in North Dakota, and, and even though I learned cognitively in the top part of my brain, I learned that, you know, all the terrible things that we did to the Native Americans, and I, and I know that they're treated badly. I also saw that there were a lot of drunk Native Americans on the streets of Bismarck, and so I have these internal biases. And I have to work against those and go, you know what? There's a reason that person's life was a disaster. It's because transgenerational trauma and, you know, marginalized, fewer opportunities, and he was self-medicating his despair. And so once you know know that, you can sort of, it's a, maybe it's a little work around some of your internal biases, but this is the stuff that we need to do a lot more of. I'm thinking about it from both sides. How do we help 
change implicit bias. If it is something we all have, it starts from probably we were babies, right? How do we actually make real changes so that both sides, let's say if we're talking about police, police officers who who are stereotypically hold power and authority, and then African-American males who are maybe viewed as criminals and the bad guys, how do we change that? Well, I think there's a couple of things that have to happen. One is that, you know, your own personal little biases can be modified by spending time with people who are different than you are. And so the more you, you spend time listening to, learning about, forming real relationships with people who are different from you, the more likely you are to, be, to sort of create clear, sort of a less distorting filter. Um, the lens will be there, but it'll be less, it'll be more accurate. It's almost like putting glasses on when you have some, you know, real life experiences are glasses for these distorting filters that we have. That's one thing. The second thing is that as a society, you know, we need to change the, the, the way media and other systems are giving these inaccurate representations of whole groups of people. So for example, when I was a kid, you know, they would have cowboy and Indian shows, right? And they would have... <laughs> Very rarely would have they'd have First Nations people actually being the actors. They'd have was always good guys versus bad guys, and very rarely were the First Nations people the good guys. And so we have to stop doing that. You know, we have to stop portraying other groups as the the other, as the bad guys. We need to have more of the stories of those people represented in our books, in our television shows, in our movies in ways that are accurate and humane and just and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's one way. The other way, the really important thing, honestly, that's so crazy. What we're taught about history is so distorted. Uh, you know, I, I just think, for example, the ability of the, the, the history books to sort of sanitize the process of colonizing North America. You know, in, the, in your initial introduction to American history, you know, history of the U.S., we start with, oh, the pilgrims come over and the pilgrims were pals with the Native Americans and they had Thanksgiving dinner. And we don't talk at all about sort of systemic, intentional genocide. We don't talk about federal policies where overt racists were put in charge of the, the reservations, where they literally, it was, it, was, it was like federal policy that the best Indians had dead Indian, for example. You know, and, and then slavery, we don't really talk about it in an explicit, overt way. We don't talk about how the entire economy of half of the country was built on slavery and continued to be built on slavery even after the war. History has to be presented in a more accurate way. So there's there's both through public education, through the media, and through our own work with ourselves, I think all three of those things are really an important part of the process. And then hopefully, if we're in a system if you're in the education system, if you're in the mental health system, juvenile, whatever system you work with, there's going to be leadership that will start to have much more explicit discussions about this and try to, to the degree possible, start to dismantle elements of systemic racism, which are, you know, when you start to look around, it's like sobering. You know, in, in Alberta, for example, where we do a lot of work, eight, maybe 9% of the population at First Nations 45% of the kids in out-of-home care. You know, wow. it's just way disproportionate. And this this is true with African-American families in the U.S. 
disproportionate representation in juvenile justice, mental health, disproportionate expulsion from school, disproportionate suspension in school, disproportionate punishment for the same crime. Just these systemic things are, we've got to change it. An interesting example is that there have been a few places where they've started to do blinded removal of children in child welfare. And so what they do is they they present the case to a panel and the situation. They don't talk about the community or the race of the person. When that's the situation, they remove children of color about half as much as they do when it's not blind. Wow. Anyway, so that that's an example of trying to dismantle sort of systemic racism. And I think, you know, the great thing about us, our culture, our society, that people, we're actually very creative and we're, and we're quite humane, even though there's a lot of things that we've all done that aren't great. I do think if we start thinking about all these things, we can get to better places. Well, I think it's interesting that you raise that because one of the other things you've said before is that the major predator of human beings are other human beings. What do you mean by that? And how do we shift from being our own worst enemies? You know, it's, again, if you kind of look back at uh, history, the history of humankind, we spent most of our time on this planet in these kind of uh, migrating clans, multi-family, multi-generational groups. We might have loose affiliation with other groups that we'd run into, but typically we were in competition for limited resources with these other groups. Humankind has always been characterized by some aspect of tribalism, that this is our group and you are other. And frequently that us and them has a dehumanizing quality to it. And so when resources become more scarce, you're much more willing to dehumanize those other folks. And, and humankind has been, we would, we raid, uh, we, we take, we, we take women and children we run off or kill the adult males and then we bring them into our group as, as slaves and we, and, or ultimately in some cultures they're absorbed into the culture, but that rating of back and forth, this sort of tribal retribution as part of humankind, it's always been there. And it's to this day, you can see this happen in multiple ways in our culture. It's something that fortunately, I mean, there's a, there's a, a number of people that study this. I mean, believe it or not, we're becoming less aggressive and hostile to each other. And the social justice and humane things are over many generations getting better, but it's still an issue. You know, we still very quickly can fall into that us and them and uh, dehumanize other people, which I think is, again, when people are frightened, when people feel fear, what happens is that smart part of your brain that thinks that's full of values and insight and, and our humane qualities, that gets shut down. And then we get more reactive, more emotional. And so an angry person is a person who is easily led in a mob by a demagogue. And again, we see this it manifests in a lot of different ways. So anyway, I could go on and on. But. I know, I know you could. One of the things you talk about though, related to what you're saying is you talk about the out group and the in group. Yeah. And I'm interested, <clears throat> kind of like you talked about dismantling systemic racism. How do you get the in group to take people in from the out group? 
How do we do that? Whether that's through childhood or where do we do that? Where do we start with that? I think the easiest way for us to do that is to work with kind of the malleability of a young child's brain. Our brains, as we're older, now there's malleability and changeability, but it's a lot easier to change the brain of a developing child. So if we have the intent as, and we decide as a family, a society, a culture, that we want to begin to minimize out-group phenomenon. We do things like we raise our children in a way that they're exposed to people that are different, that we talk about those differences in a celebratory way. We celebrate differences and help children understand that the diversity of a living group makes it stronger. Anybody who knows anything about animals and in ecology and ecosystems and knows that when a when an ecosystem is diverse, it's healthy. The less diverse is the more vulnerable ecosystem. And so diversity is great for human beings. And so if we start to teach that, that it's the diversity of gender, diversity of sexual orientation, diversity of the way you think, diversity of skin color, diversity of religion, that makes us stronger. And even in our debates about certain things, as long as we can do these in a respectful way, it helps us all grow. But that, and so I think that that's, in the end, that will be the key is how we raise our children. Can we raise our children in an environment where we expose them to a range of diverse ways of living and being and thinking and looking and so that they can, number one, tolerate these differences because differences scare people. You know, the, the, the interesting thing about when you learn about the stress response, one of the first things you learn is your stress response gets activated when you see something that you don't expect or something that's unfamiliar. And so if we can help people tolerate a little bit of that discomfort, then I think they'll be much more capable of ultimately getting to the point where they can see and celebrate differences. And I think that that's, you know, I, I, I'm aspirational in my hopes. I, I honestly think that, that we can do that. You see this, right? I mean, you talk to somebody who's, you know, there's a woman that I had a chance to talk with a couple of days ago who actually was a child who marched with Martin Luther King. And she talked about, you know, it is true that all these things that people are angry about, it's there, but it was worse. And there has been progress. And I mean, just think about the Supreme Court's decision in the, yesterday or recently about equality of, you know, LGBTQ. I mean, it's, the world is changing. I, I just think that when that, when that does happen and when that's not such a big deal that somebody gets married, if they're the same sex and that'll be better, you know? So like that might, you know, my parents might have be shocked by that, but my kids are like, what's the big deal? And so I think, you know, you see these little bits of progress and I think we can continue to make progress. I hope that you guys are enjoying this conversation with Dr. Perry. I know that I am, but I need to take a brief pause right now and tell you a little bit more about BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. BetterHelp is great because it has a broad range of expertise that might not be available where you live. This service is available for clients worldwide. You actually get to log into your account anytime 
and send messages to your counselor, kind of like texting back and forth. You get timely and thoughtful responses and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't ever have to go into a waiting room again. They are committed to making this affordable and so financial aid is also available. BetterHelp is available to my listeners for one free week if you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Dr. Ziegler one week. That's betterhelp.com forward slash D-R-Z-I-E-G-L-E-R, the number one week. Now back to Dr. Perry. Why do you think we don't talk about that more, that we have made progress? Why would that, like, I can imagine that being like an unpopular, maybe point of view or just fact that people don't want to really focus on. Well, here's what I think. Honestly, I think my ability to kind of sit back and go, hey, we're making progress is an example of white privilege. I I see the progress, but the truth is if you're living as a person of color in this society, you don't really feel it necessarily. I mean, it's like you still have to live with all kinds of nonverbal cues that you're in the out group. You still don't have power. You still don't have dominance in the corporate world. You're not sitting on the boards of these corporations you're underrepresented as college professors. You're under every look everywhere. You're underrepresented in every area except those areas <laughs> that put you highly vulnerable to getting COVID, <laughs> like service industries and other things. And so I again, I think that that's why I think it can feel offensive when somebody like me says to people of color that there's been progress. It, it's a derailing comment, honestly. It's sort of, it's trying to take some of the energy out of what they're trying to say. And so I, I, I say that with caution. I say that in an aspirational way. I'm not saying we shouldn't do all this other stuff we're doing uh, or that that shouldn't happen. In fact, I think that one of the things I talk about is how systems change. It, it, both systems in a, the developing child systems in a family, systems in a business, systems in our in our society, you get to a certain point of organization. And the only way to get to the new place is to disorganize. And so anybody who's been a parent has probably had that experience where, why are they acting like they're four again? I mean, why are they having tantrums again? Why are they wetting the bed again? And then all of a sudden, boom, they act like a five-year-old. Like, wow. I always give the example of this. Let's say you live in a, a one-bedroom house and your family is growing. It's having new experiences. You're having another child. And you, you're, you're maybe making a little bit more because you've got a promotion at work. And so all kinds of stuff is happening to your family. But you're still at the same sort of living and organizational status. But it's getting more cramped. And you decide, hey, let's move to a two-bedroom house. And so in order to move to that new house you have to go through a period of complete disorganization before you can reorganize at the new, higher, better level. And anybody who's moved knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's like it's like chaos moving. You're not as functional. You're more irritable. You know, you don't feel as settled in. But once you finally get in and everything's kind of put away, you're like, wow, this is awesome. You're now at a new level of organization. You're at new equilibrium as a family. And that's what has to happen. Uh, child welfare has to dismantle, uh, disorganize, and then reorganize. Education has to disorganize and reorganize. And honestly, I think that this COVID thing is a blessing in disguise. I, I, I mean, it's tragic that people are dying, but I think this kind of opportunity to reset means that we can, you know, maybe we can come back and do things a little bit better. 
in the newer version of school, you know, maybe in, even the businesses, it's like, do you really need to drive in an hour and a half every day to sit at a desk and answer phones and work on a computer and then drive back home? Maybe two days a week, you could stay home and get the same amount done. You can see I'm an optimist. You are an optimist, but I, I, I love that you're an optimist and you have this great, really common sense, easy way of understanding pretty complex systems. And you answered this question. I was going to ask you if you felt like there was a difference in people saying, we think we need police dismantling versus reform. Like initially I had, I, I feel like I have this knee jerk reaction to dismantling, like how chaotic that sounds to me. Like yeah. reform sounds something that my system can manage a lot better. But all, but really, I feel like what you just said was, no, it's, it is going to be a dismantling and a yeah. rebuilding. Yeah. And then there'll be parts of, I mean, it's amazing. If you spend time with people who are in law enforcement, it's amazing how much time, it, when it's good policing, how much time they do social work. They go in and they listen to families that are fighting and they, you know, they try to calm them down. And the, the irony is they're doing stuff that a lot of them aren't necessarily that well trained to do. You find somebody who's drunk sitting in a car in a parking lot. If it was you and me, we could say, hey, come on, let, 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 you shouldn't drive. Come on, let's help you get home. We wouldn't arrest him because I don't have the power to arrest people. But I wouldn't want him to drive. I'd say, here, we're going to take your keys. I'm going to call an Uber. What's your address? We'll get you home. And tomorrow we'll figure out how to get you back here to get your car. You could have solved that problem. It didn't need police to solve that problem. And I think that there's a lot of things like that. I mean, there was a homeless person that was shot and killed in New Mexico last year, sitting at a bus stop. Somebody called about a homeless guy, like eight or nine cops show up and they're like, they're approaching him and he's, he's like a homeless guy. And they're saying, hands in the air. He puts his hands in the air and then, then don't get your hands, don't put your hands near your belt. And then he goes up, basically, you know, because he's like, Why? yeah. And and so they shoot him, kill him. I mean, it's like, what? I mean, I run into homeless people all the time when I'm in cities. And you talk with them and sometimes they hassle you and sometimes they don't. And you can joke with them and you give them a little money. Say, listen, I'm not giving you money, but I'll buy you some coffee. Come on. You don't have to shoot him. So I think if we sort of make the jobs that police need guns for narrower, and the jobs where we need kind of well-trained, almost like the people that work on mental health units to kind of de-escalate an escalated patient. Those skills, we could avoid a lot of this stuff, I think. It seems um, like such a big task. And are we ready for that? And can we do this without politics? And that's where it feels like a really unsettling time. And, you know, not just for me personally, it feels unsettling, but also for the kids that I work with. Oh, yeah. What's going to happen? Am I safe? Are my parents safe? You know, and I can't really say yes for certain. Again, for me, that's part of the privilege of being a white person is that I can probably say to my kids and my grandkids with pretty good certainty that you're, you're going to be safe. You're going to be fine. I don't know that my friends who have are of color can do that. I mean, they have to go through really explicit instruction about what you should do if this happens and don't do this. And it's, it's terrible. I, I just, and I, and you, and you said the thing you said about there's so much to do and the reality is there is, but the great thing is that there's so many of us, not any one of us has to do all of this, but all of us have to do a little bit. And if we all do a little bit and we, we work within our sphere of concern, 
mm-hmm. you know, both with educating and, and, and talking about this stuff with our own families, calling bullshit on our peers when they kind of make a racist joke or, or they minimize something. Don't let as much stuff pass as we used to let. And um, I think change will happen. Yes. I mean, I'm with you on that. I think um, like you're saying, and I like that you're really normalizing it. I'm going to start using that right away that we, we kind of have to go through this chaotic part right now while we're dismantling to rebuild even stronger and really good ideas that we can all relate to. So I like that. It provides me some sense of, okay, this isn't totally novel. Every day there are situations where people move or you get a raise or you get married, whatever it is, and you turn your life upside down. I think that people, you know, one of the things, the first things I talked about when I was trying to teach people about this pandemic, I was like, listen, don't be afraid of stress. Stress is you're always managing stressors in your life. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're little, but your stress response systems are always working. And these disorganizations are really important to make real change. You don't make real change. And and Cheryl, you know this too. You've probably been involved in these things where the state gets together and we're going to reorganize the child welfare system and they get all the experts together and you go to these meetings and they, they tinker, they tinker. You know, the group comes up with some really interesting recommendations, but the state decides it can only work, act on you know, recommendation one and six, and then it just tinkers with them and underfunds whatever you recommend. And that's what we've been doing. The reality is this is an opportunity to kind of not stop tinkering. Some of these systems, we've got to just literally blow up and that the, the world won't end. You know, if all of a sudden police are no longer responsible for some of the social work that goes on in, in big cities, that's not going to make that much difference. There's examples. I mean, Newark, uh, you know, and, and um, there's a, a number of places where they've done very creative shifts in the way people do police work. They've done better at, you know, they've, they've trained law enforcement officers more about how to do conflict resolution. And they've brought in other people to help support them so that if it's not something that involves an arrest and a gun, then hand it off. Yeah. What do you think about the fact that now, particularly let's say just police, but I guess any of us, but they're, every bit of their work is now on camera, is being videoed. I've been thinking about this lately. How would I behave? Like, I remember when I was in grad school, right? And your sessions were recorded right. and it was like angst. I would be like so nervous. And I'm like, I wouldn't have been that. I, I still to this day probably would not be the same. Let's say if you were observing me the next hour versus if I was just alone, right? I'm more relaxed. I'm very fascinated by this. How would everybody feel if every single thing you did in your role as a parent or in your job was recorded and scrutinized? Oh, I can tell you, if, yeah, there'd be a lot of people that would no longer be experts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and in fact, my wife jokes with me sometimes about like, you know, you're the child expert. <laughs> like After you said that, like, I'm like ah. anyway, it's absolutely true. That's hard. Although I do think that because of the nature of that work, the people who are being arrested or are being interacted with deserve that transparency. But there's no doubt about it that it's it's a, it, it puts pressure on those law enforcement officials to sort of, in some ways, be different than they might be otherwise. And I guess maybe that's part of the idea that they'll be different in a better way. There are so many different aspects to this that are worth deeper thinking that I hope what this does is stimulate this, the kind of thoughtful conversation that we're having. Like, just, is there a way to ensure that we're, that we 
know what happened without making somebody feel so continually scrutinized. Because that, that's got to beat down your your sense of competence, your sense of everything. I mean, literally, I, I think your point about videotaping your clinical work is so such a great example because that was so inhibiting. You know, you know everybody's going to be watching it and critiquing it. And so what you do is you disengage from the client. You know, you're sort of more worried about this other stuff and, and they can feel it and the whole thing gets sort of herky-jerky. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've just been thinking about it so much lately because also it's not like I don't really mean the body cams. For some reason, that feels a little different. I mean, like if I was doing something publicly, even if it was, yeah, I had a, I had a child who was melting down in a parking lot and 15 people got their video cameras out and oh. put their camera up to yeah. video me reprimanding my child or something. Yeah. I know it would impact me. I know I would act different. I don't know if it would be better or worse. I, I don't even know, but I do know that I would, my adrenaline would be pumping yeah. and I well, would be more the other stressed. the thing is that whatever choice you made as a parent, once it got online, there would be like 50 different opinions, you know? And of course, everybody has an opinion about everything now. Even if somebody who you think has a lot of credibility said, hey, that's a completely reasonable way to parent, there'd be other people going, oh, that was child abuse or that was, how can you yell at your child? Or like, you know, like, God, have you had kids? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. I, I am. I, and, it's, and it's really not to trivialize the point. It's just this is the society we're living in. It's like people have some power with the with cameras and video cameras. They also have platforms all over the place. I, I want to see that keep evolving into something that's actually positive and not like I gotcha moments. We yeah, got gotcha. there's a lot of those. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I mean, I, I feel the same way about, you know, I think about I think this, for me, this first showed up when the scrutiny over politicians got really crazy. Like every single word and it's translated this way or that way. Or, you know, the people that like him think that, that he was saying this. The people that don't like him think he was saying that. And, and of course, you turn on one channel and they go, so-and-so says this. And the other channel goes, so-and-so says that. And you're like, wait a minute. I, I need to see what he exactly said. And then you realize both sides are kind of cherry picking stuff. Man, we, we have this over scrutiny sometimes that is unnatural. Because when you think about, you know, there's a developmental psychologist, I think you probably know of Ed Tronic. He developed the still face paradigm with babies, you know, that when they have a mother, all of a sudden stop being emotionally expressive. And the baby would get more and more frantic and frantic and like, come on, give me some feedback. And so part of what his research has been is about human communication And the key thing that he's finding, and of course, kind of everybody probably knows this, is that the very nature of human communication is about rupture and then repair, that you're out of sync and then you sort of reestablish synchrony. And think about how, let's take your, your partner, let's say this person you've lived with, you know better than anybody in the world, you supposedly love them. How often are you spending time explaining that you didn't mean that with them? Often. (laughs) Right. I mean, so think about that. It's just so with people you don't know at all, we're always sort of missing. We're trying to communicate something, but we kind of we're not saying the right words. We're not using the right example. And I think that it once if people knew that human communication was about 85 percent clarification as opposed (laughs) to exposition, you know, this. Everything I say is, is going to be clear and it's just going to stick to your brain. But the reality is we get accurate information of what I tended to say into your brain in these little slivers a little bit at a time. And then after a while you go, oh, you did like my haircut. <laughs> yes. 
I love it. <laughs> so true. I could talk to you all day, but I have one more question. Yes. And then I'll let you go do your world changing work. So uh, one thing that I got from one of your COVID talks was really important to me. And it was about how people need to be aware of their status and their power and their communication or their leadership will suffer. You know, as we talk so much about systems today and how they have to dismantle and rebuild, how do you think leadership will look different whether people are self-aware or not? And how do you teach that? Yeah. And, you know, and you started out wanting to talk about the power differential, which is important that, you know, when people interact with each other, there's this automatic sort of sizing up, like you're an equal and I don't feel like you're overpowering and I don't feel like you're you know vulnerable to me. I feel like we're having an, in this equal interaction, but if you're the boss or if you're the teacher or the parent, what happens is that the person that you are the leader of, they feel a little bit vulnerable. So when you make a critical comment, it can sometimes get magnified and feel like a shout. And you didn't intend to be overly critical. You just wanted to point out this one little thing. And I think that if you're a leader and you don't understand this power differential, you're continually making the mistake of pushing the people you're working with into a state of dysregulation where they'll be less efficient in anything creative they do. They'll be less productive in any work they do. They'll be more likely to be reactive with each other. And you're really having the exact opposite impact, opposite effect of what you intended to make the workers be more productive, more inventive, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that one of the bigger issues that's going to happen in this sort of all of this reshuffling is that And I think it should be part of what has to happen is a reshuffling of power that people that were previously powerless, maybe even voiceless, are now going to be given opportunities to move to a position of power. And I think that one of the things I've already seen this happen on some of our calls, that as you know, opportunities that a person of color may have, for example, if they're very angry and rightfully so what will happen is the fragility of the people under that are they're trying to communicate with may be so great that they won't be heard and all they'll say is oh that's just an angry black woman mm-hmm. they will not hear what she's saying in the same way and so this is why i think the biggest one of the most important things that we can do during this whole process is help people understand what we call state-dependent functioning. That people who feel safe are going to be people who will learn. People who feel safe will be the people who can change. And what will happen is the people who feel threatened will be defensive and they'll push back and they'll do anything they can to maintain the status quo. And so, uh, and again, I'm not saying that this does, this means don't shout, don't protest, which I think you should. But I think that once the beehive has been kicked, I do think that people involved in this process have to learn how to sit together respectfully, listen to each other, have opportunities to reflect on what's been said, and then kind of keep going back and doing this again and again and again. And so if we can create moderate, predictable doses of uncomfortable conversation, they're uncomfortable, but they're not overwhelming. If we can do that, we we can ultimately make people who are too fragile to talk about this more capable of talking about this and then ultimately more capable of seeing what everyone is trying to communicate to them. 
and then they can change. You know, change doesn't happen without insight. And insight is a cortical thing. Change is a cortical thing, right? Meaning you have to get through all the other parts of the brain. They've got to clear, clear, clear to get here. Yeah. And that means to some degree safety. Mm-hmm. And so I think the more we can create opportunities for respectful dialogue and listening and see if you're afraid that giving up power is going to hurt you, then you will not give up power. You'll do everything you can to fight back. But if you realize that giving up power makes your community better, makes your society better in the long run, it's in the best interest of your family and your grandchildren and your children if you share power, but you'll never feel that way if you if that process is characterized by hate and a different form of us and them. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your great wisdom and your really easy to understand way of just how we're going to get through this and what this all really means and how stress and distress and transgenerational really years of trauma are just impacting where we are today. So well, thank I, you, Cheryl, I for thank the you. opportunity. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. You bet.